another episode of Three Wise DMs, the podcast for three dungeon masters who've been doing this for way too long. I've been talking about all the things we do to try to make our games as good as they can be. I'm Thorne, and I'm joined by... Tony. Mommy's alright, daddy's alright, they just seem a little weird. Surrender, <laughs> surrender, but don't give yourself away. Hey, hey, Surrender. Fucking cheap trick, baby. Cheap? What's that cheap trick? I didn't say yeah, it. surrender. Absolutely. What a bardic inspiration, <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's a good one. You gotta hit some notes. You gotta you, maybe not hit some notes, but you gotta belt that one out. There. I'm using uh yeah, I'm using my Roderick Scholar's loot of secrets from Storm King's Thunder campaign. So I, I use that to belt it out. <laughs> that does not sound like a Diablo item at all. That was several. That that took several charges. I think I'm not sure. <laughs> it's just sing that one. I imagined it. But there. it didn't fucking matter because I would get every one of them back at dawn. Like <laughs> that thing was a beast. Tony's magic items were very generous in recharge rates. I'll say that much. Oh, my God. So, oh, you know what? Okay. Before we even get... I'm sorry. No, Second edition items were horrible. You find an awesome wand. You're like, yes, this is great. And, oh, three more charges and it's dust. Sorry. <laughs> well, fifth edition, they do recharge. You just have that kind of random chance that goes pop if you I'll run out. I'll tell you what, man. In Barovia... I would have been gifting that out like, you are welcome, party. I am so <laughs> beneficial to you. I am so magnanimous. Oh, yeah, just all world. kinds of benevolence. Like, yes, you have three charges. You are welcome, <laughs> Earth. <laughs> I don't know. Barovia has been a Monty Hall campaign, too. Yeah. I mean, everyone, everyone's got some legendary magic items. The only one who hasn't done legendary magic items yet is me in the Woodstock I... Wanderers. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But we we are we are still dripping with some uh some loot yeah. though. So nothing I'm still playing that. with the book stuff. You know, that's my attitude in these games. I'm still playing with the book stuff. Like I'm not inventing my own stuff yet because I still got all the book to go through. Me too. Yeah, I got a lot of book in there. So. And I don't even know where the book is, so don't look at me. <laughs> <laughs> so there's like book pshaw, throws it in the corner, forges ahead. He's not ad living, but he is making yeah. it all up as he goes. <laughs> and the question is you know we okay so we've got a little far field from the song which is a great fit for what today's episode is so it is time for us to talk about surrender so we talked last week about combat and how we run combat one thing we didn't touch on was how do you handle when the monsters and the villains either surrender or run away how do you know when it's time to do that what you know what do you do when the, how do the players react how do you ma manage the situation what do you do after it happens you know now that these guys are still running around alive in your world and not only how do you handle surrender at the encounter level but how do you handle surrender at the story level you know uh, when does your big bag i go huh all right you guys beat me here you, you don't want to kill me because i'm turning myself in how do we handle that kind of thing? So that's tonight's episode, talking all about managing surrenders and fleeing and basically conflict that doesn't necessarily end in the obliteration, potential genocide of the NPCs involved in the combat. <laughs> so, guys, is this uh, I mean, is this something that's kind of a big issue in your campaigns? I mean, do you, do you think about this a lot? I think it's more prevalent depending upon your players. And I kind of break this apart into, is this a scripted or non-scripted surrender? 
So if I kind of get the feeling I've got mm. a very honorable, I don't know, paladin or ranger in the party, for example, who's looking to bring this person in alive, then you throw in the cutscene and it's mm. gonna have a point. Like something needs to come out of that. However, if it is a non-scripted surrender, then that's okay too. Roll with it and throw in a uh, plot point. You know, the party deserves it. What about you, Dave? How do you handle it? Yeah, um, to the death. I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna take it back to last week's one too. You know, uh, the mantra of make intelligence matter again. Mm. So the intelligence of the monsters and what is their end goal and who are they? So. For that reason, it's going to matter if they are surrendering. So generally, uh, one of my bigger bads is probably not going to surrender, but they probably will uh, retreat. They will yeah. attempt to flee to fight another day. Um, whereas the goblins, like in our my Frost Maiden campaign, the girls came upon this goblin party that had taken some of these iron ingots that they were trying to recover for these dwarves. And the goblins had just come upon this stuff. They're scavengers like Jawas in Star Wars. So a fight ensued, but I had the whole plan right from the get-go that there was a chance where they're going to go, hey, hey, we're, it, this is cool. Can we just go? And they kind of <laughs> negotiated out their surrender so that they could leave peacefully in a way. Um, that works a lot more for me for goblins than, let's say, the hags at Old Bone Grinder. Well, I mean, the hags escaped, too. They were just, you know, under but not a surrender. That was a retreat, right? That yeah. was a, okay, we're in over our heads. We're not going to go nuts, you know, bare nuts with these guys. We're going to get out of here and really fuck with them down the road, which they did then for, God, several sessions over at least. That's true. That's true. Yeah. I don't even know if we were aware of them until the one showed up actually at Babala Saga's. I mean, because they basically, they played with us with, what was, what's his name? Blinsky. Blinsky. Yeah, was, so you guys found out they were making, somebody was making voodoo dolls. Yeah. Then when you were at Vokter House, you found out that they were in with Lady Vokter. You were fighting them. The big mom, you know, Morgantha, she got out of Dodge after you killed her other daughter. Yeah. And then you finally then found Morgantha again at Baba Lysaga's where she was trying to then, you know, marshal forces with the big hag. And then you just ended both of them there. So, <laughs> but I got some mileage out of them. Out of that good you sure did. Yeah. yeah. That's good use of it. Especially the, uh, I really liked the little touch with the voodoo, with the voodoo dolls. That was, that was very creepy and really made us wondering. And the fact that that linked back up with them was pretty cool. Awesome. Awesome. Because that was something that totally happened because of the retreat. So then I was like, all right, what are they going to do? And I don't know, hopefully somebody out there who's running Curse of Strahd will play with the voodoo dolls, too, because it's super cool. It's, it's just because it, it, it is super creepy and it fits the whole vibe. Yeah, definitely. Definitely is. Now, for me, fifth edition, I find myself doing something more in fifth edition than I have in the past, which is actually having some of the bigger bad guys in an encounter run away at the end of the encounter. So the first time it happened was Art Kang. The first time mm. you guys saw Art Kang, he had he he encountered you with a bunch of like uh with a bunch of um uh I can never remember the Deathlocks, the 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 undead warlocks. And you guys took them out and you fought him for a while and the battle kind of drug out. And what I did in the end was you guys were kind of waiting for him to come out and he had turned invisible, but he was also at this by the point where like, okay, you guys are beating him down, beating him down, beating him down. And yeah, he made the intelligent decision of, okay, I'm going to retreat here. And then you guys found out a little later, oh, he's not there anymore because he had, he had gone invisible. But part of the reason I did that and part of the reason it's come up again since then, because 
in this last battle, we, we talked last session about how we had a long session, long fight defending the town in the Woodstock Wanderers. And there were three vampires at the top of it. And the two spellcasting vampires ran away. And the reason I had that happen in both situations actually wasn't because it was scripted. I had intended all those characters to die on the battlefield. <laughs> but the way hit points run in 5th edition, especially if you're using higher CR monsters, is you can wind up in a grind where it is like, okay, the battle's over, but there's like two guys out here that still have over 100 hit points left. And all I'm going to do is like just be trading punches with the party until they're dead. But they have like invisibility. They have abilities that will get them out of the fight. At that point, I usually use them, and I pop those and get them out of the fight, and then I have them available to use again later. So, Thorin, that's an interesting point, and it actually makes me think to something Tony just said, where he'll have actual scripted retreats and or surrenders in his thing, because that's what happened with Brother Maynard the first time we encountered him, yes? That was kind of a scripted, here's your big guy, he's going to kick you in the balls a little bit, and then he's getting out of dodge. Yeah, and that's that is the other thing I like to do. And that's kind of a classic trick of mine. You know, when I first set up a campaign, especially in the beginning, the party will usually have something when they're at first to third level that is more of like a uh, a, a third tier challenge, you know, a, sec a high second or third tier challenge. So someone who's up closer to like CR 8, 9, 10, who everyone knows they cannot fight yet. Mm -hmm. He'll pop in, he will he will assert dominance in an encounter. And then, and then that character will just, it doesn't have to be a he, it can be a she. But, you know, basically the whole point is to let the party know, hey, you're dealing with someone who's more powerful than you. Beat them up a little bit and then have him like leave like, a, leave like some friends and go run off. And I like to do that because it says that it's a combination of that kind of boundary encounter we've talked about. That, hey, yeah. you can't necessarily deal with everything in the world right now. And it also, but it ties it into the actual long campaign because they know, oh, that guy's really tough right now. So when we come back and beat him later, we're going to feel really tough when we take him out. So that is another trick I use. I mean, those are really, that is a scripted retreat. And I, I don't use it too often, but I do feel like it really, you know, the party tends to like when they get to kill that guy later on. Tony, is that kind of like what you mean by that? Is that the way you use it or is it even more so with that? Because that, that was interesting the way you said it was a scripted retreat or surrender. Well, I recall back in the day, uh, my, uh, the, back the powder. Back in the day. Yeah. Sir Thomas defeated one of the infamous Black Knights, and he had an opportunity to take him down, and he got, and that led to that character, that NPC's redemption down the road. And I kind of envisioned it might play like that, but I didn't want to force it. But uh, I think you had a good point there, Dave. Uh, opponents don't have to fight to the death, uh, like the, like their uh, Darth Maul who gets cut in half. And they're like, <laughs> okay, I'm cut in half. It's fight's over. Um, but uh, that also teaches your players how the world works for you. Because are you if you vanquish an opponent, defeat them, uh, get them to take the knee, are they are you creating a Batman and Joker situation where yes. they're gonna be back in two games to that to bring your bring you a slice of hell? Or is this NPC too dangerous to live? Mm. And that's Vanilla, the tough thing. The Mace Windu Star Wars thing, right? But that's true though, like cause think about that, right? I mean we can talk a Palpatine, Darth Maul, even Thanos, whoever, whatever a fucking the Nazgul, whatever, they're constantly show up, show up, show up, show up, show up until the final big battle, maybe. And then even then, not so much like Batman and the Joker. That's literally 60 years or Christ, more than 80 years of that. 
in a pathological inability to kill the Joker, no matter who the Joker kills. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Want to talk about plot holes? There's one right there. How many Robins does the Joker have to kill before Batman finally kills him back? Well, I mean, that's constantly a trope, that they're always trying to escape to fight another day, right? You know, I don't know if it's frustrating, which we have to be careful with. Sometimes the mm. book really wants to take it the satisfaction of killing that dude. So you don't want to have someone run away all the time. And, for example, R. Kang's run away, run away twice now. He also ran away during the Brother Maynard fight. Right. I guess if he shows up again and just kind of keeps running away, well, one, at some point he becomes irrelevant because he's going to get he's going to get power, power topped. You know, he's going to wind up where, where the party is just over so far above him that I can't level him up really realistically fast enough. It's like all of a sudden Ark Kang has gone from being this yeah. CR nine, 10 monk, like I get like, like 11 level 11 or 12 monk to now he needs to be like a level 25 demigod. to threaten. <laughs> I mean, I guess, I guess I could have someone empower him. Yeah, actually, hold on, hold on. I like this idea. <laughs> you're, you're, maybe you fight an empowered CR 25 Ark Kang down the road. If you don't actually deal with him now. <laughs> he's the size threat. of godzilla that's great he might be maybe he just goes maybe he just goes uh super aracocra you know he gets the, he gets the big the big spiky hair feathers and he turns he glows orange that's like your uh that's your idea for my strad where he's just on his horse and he just drinks a potion and starts glowing blue with lightning and shit and i was thinking like, cracks a gem but yeah yeah something like that is yeah it I is, like it is dragon scale armor you know you're like, oh shit, this is a lot different. He drinks in a hundred concentrated dark souls. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, he shows up and he drains the entire village of like, or the entire, I guess, minor city of Bre of uh, Brez. He just, just, he just, he just shows up above the city, drains all their souls, and now boom, he's super vampire. <laughs> I think that's a fair way to power or, up a villain who's or, getting overpowered. Or every one of the bosses we've defeated, he's secretly absorbing their power and it's coming to him. Oh, I like that. That's good, Tony. That's, really That's not bad, but all all of those, while they're cool, they kind of completely at that point take a hard left turn from the gothic horror that we've been trying to kind of craft at least a little of. What are you talking of, about? You know? Once I kill the barbarian, he'll then have the macho man's power and we'll have to wrestle with the big finish. <laughs> I mean, I mean is, is there anything in gothic horror that forbids draining souls from an entire city to become a super being? No. Uh, there's just no um, no pre there's not a lot of precedent how about that there's not a lot of precedent i mean dracula drank a lot of souls right i mean it seems seems fair seems fair we're gonna totally regret this at the end of this campaign right <laughs> i just i'm furiously writing notes here they don't mind they want cr23 it doesn't matter <laughs> I mean, want I mean, Dracula as an abolite. I mean, some of the other players might, but me and Tony, yeah, come on. <laughs> yeah, as you spamming up. hard, wilting, sure. I want to throw this question out here, trying to get back on the topic a little bit. So if the villain does not deserve death, like you're a villain, but they're not one of these truly horrific villains, is redemption really an option? I guess that really de depends on the plot line and the players. That is such a, you know, you never quite know how your players are going to react. And then you need to think about how are you going to react to what they do. It's, it's not quite at that level, but we had in the other game in the Woodstock Wanderers world, we had an encounter with goblins. 
who were trying to take out the party. And in the end, they got one of them to give them information on the guarantee that they would let that goblin go. So the goblin gave them the information and went running. Actually, I tried to figure out where Strahd's castle was. The goblin told them where Strahd's castle was and went running away. Uh, two goblins actually went running away. And one of the players shot one of the, uh, shot one of the running goblins in the face with a firebolt as they were running away and killed it <laughs> after promising we, after I, the party promised to let them go. So and that actually harsh. wasn't me. That's hard. No, it wasn't shockingly well i mean you're playing lawful good this time erasmus has really been on your best behavior this is the most well-behaved character I, you've ever had it's horrifying i know well <laughs> i would say out of the box i mean i think we could, we have more precedent in our in our campaigns with that with storm king's thunder mm. i mean our party was constantly trying to talk our way through things and not necessarily redeem people but not just end their lives right not just he's too dangerous to live like that even with the storm king's daughters themselves we kind of let the the dra the giant kin deal with how they wanted to within their own internal system in a way you know well i don't know if our least murder hobo party ever is a good analog for the parties that other dms are dealing with it really was <laughs> a bit of an odd party like we resisted killing anyone outright if we could help it it was like, a good balance. Because really I'm two. such a combat focused. We I know. Like, I mean. In the party. And I think that really hardly, that really made a hard uh, balance <laughs> for us. It was a heavy fulcrum, you know? So. There was a lot of charisma. There was a lot of goody two shoes characters. Yeah. I mean, they didn't want us looting the dungeons, you know? Like, I mean, it was so, you know. <laughs> oh, so we, no, that sarcophagus that belongs to someone. Oh, <laughs> But, but further to what you were saying, Thorne, I think that's a good point. But I would say instead of react to the party, I think this is a good example of responding rather than reacting. So you're rolling your people out and then your party is starting to interact with that world. And how they do that can change if they decide, hey, we think we can redeem this guy or he's maybe not a, a Gabinacqua. Perfect example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're kind of coming to the point. My character Beam is is kind of pushing hard on it that that's not the enemy. We're not talking good and evil. This this thing is an entity that that is like a it's it's saying the storm is evil. It's not. It's just a force of nature. Uh, in the same way, so now we're not trying to redeem, but we're not trying to be like we're going to kill this elder god. Like you know, <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> so fo focusing that's out there, focusing the murder on certain individuals over others, maybe <laughs> something like that. I don't know. I, I do like making the party make that decision in throwing it out there in different ways. I mean, with that campaign, I've got multiple like multiple villains. That could all be looked at as maybe this villain is actually on our uh, is actually in our best interest, mm. and I try to throw that out there a lot, which creates a lot of the kind of runaway or surrender type of opportunities, mm. because the party gets to decide how are they going to handle, you know, like Count Ruffelgay. He just disappeared last time, but he has uh, one of Erasmus's old buddies. He has his soul. Mm -hmm. So, like, he's always got that to bargain with, and he already has started bargaining with it a little bit. So you guys can one day corner him, and that might come up. He might try to trade. And redeem uh, him with, like, 45 million joules of electricity. <laughs> well, yeah, but then you don't get Orion back. Like, he, he, he might be trading, hey, you know, you could kill me, but then you're never getting Orion's soul back. You want Orion's soul back. So, so that's the other thing. It's not always on the positive side. Sometimes they're just such great villains that they have already figured out a reason you're not going to want to kill them. I mean, that is a very classic movie trope, right? The real villain behind everything has not only thought about how are they 
opposing you, but if you win, they've already got the plan for, okay, so how am I going to get out of getting killed? I think Tony did this with the with his Marvel game, uh, where, so we have retreat, surrender, and I think a third option is they're so coldly calculating and Machiavellian that they have figured the game and they already have you in checkmate. So it's not yeah. retreating or, or surrender, but it's it's kind of this other option besides just getting murdered or murdering, right? Like we had with whatever his... Tyrant. his yeah, right? I think so, right? Where he kind of gave us this moral quandary. So we were like, all right, well, we got to do this because we're superheroes. Well, okay. There was, there was two encounters there. The stranger put you in a moral quandary. And at the end, you confronted the tyrant and his power wasn't there because you, you succeeded in an appropriate amount of challenges. Mm, you know, yeah. that was kind of my uh, carrot and stick there to get you to uh, go through there. So you wouldn't have to face him at his full strength. And his full strength is really preposterous. But when you cornered him, he had a way out. Like, yeah. You were not going to be able to corner him unless you guys did something really crazy. And it is, he, even he was negotiating with you, he really was in a position where you could get him because he was actually up on his ship miles and miles above you. And down there was just a <laughs> shell that he was talking through. Mm. Know when your know when your villain talk giving his monologue should be a hologram and not really there in person. Well, as Sun Tzu said, you should always give your opposing army an op a way out. Like in Thorne's game with uh, Talantia, I wouldn't say every Talantia knight is in fact a Nazi who needs to be put to the sword. No, although a lot of them have since become vampires, werewolves, and things like that. Put, so. They'll be put to the stake, though. That's, that's, fair game. <laughs> that's different. That's different. I mean, the variables have changed in the test now, so that's different. <laughs> But one thing we touched on, we didn't really wrap up on, was, okay, so the bad guys, they choose, they take the deal. They choose to surrender. They choose to leave with their lives. And then the party doesn't honor it. I actually, when that happens, I usually find some way to punish the party for it. It depends what they do. So, like, with the goblin case, had the party killed both goblins and no one ever found out that there had been a betrayal, nothing would have happened. One of the goblins did escape. I mean, once his friend's head blew up, he started running like hell. And he got away, and he escaped. And then the next adventure, there were a set of elite goblins, one wargs. These are the warg riders Tony's talked about, who were jacked up. They were basically, they might have actually been hobgoblins. But they came and tracked and ran the party down and attacked them, put them in a really hard fight. A fight that was maybe hard enough that I don't even know if that was fun. But the whole point of that was, well, hey, you broke your word. They found out about it, and someone took issue with it and came to get revenge. I, I, I like to do that in that situation because I think when you start making deals and breaking deals, the world starts reacting. You know, yeah. people who hear about that start forming strong opinions about you. Sometimes that means that, you know, elite things come to try to take you, know, punish you for what you did. Because I think once you start doing these things, I, I do think there should be some, some incentive to keep your word, right? If you don't keep your word and people find out, well, you know, you have some downsides. Well, there's cause and effect. The first thing that I thought of with this was the, our, probably all of our fre most freshest trauma, which was the Red Wedding, right, from Game of Thrones. So what happened, right? So Walter Frey, spoilers anyway, but, you know, I mean, watch the goddamn thing already. Yeah, um, it's, but... years old. it's years old at this point. I mean, come on. But... So he offers them bread and salt, right? Which is the, that's, that you are safe within my house with that. And he betrays that, right? So something is going to happen from that. Now it takes a while, but the revenge that Arya brings upon his house comes, right? So yeah. the same thing. So it could be that elite guard or something happens in the world where 
that that cause you have sown a seed and it starts to bear fruit yeah i think you should because i think the world should react to the party like i mean some people and, and you know you have players who can make a really good argument tony makes this argument very well that you know oh well that guy look we can let him go but what's he going to do he's going to go back join a new goblin clad and just go rape and murder <laughs> more villagers how could we really let this guy go that's not a terrible point you can but you can get them to agree to things you know i think once you've kind of put surrender on the table i think you're kind of you know you're in surrender mode now someone might notice if you betray them i think that's fair one of my pain points in gaming throughout my career was in the amazing and legendary game of Baldur's Gate when I would kill a random NPC in the middle of the woods. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> my reputation drops 8 out of 20 points because the Google cam in the sky and the satellite saw that. <laughs> that is true. But, but as far as bad guys surrendering, I think really the repercussions also should depend upon the alignment and the style of the characters that are in your party. And if they're being true to that, However, I'm not going to, as a, as a player, I don't want to be morally high-roaded by a bunch of chaotic, evil NPCs. You didn't <laughs> keep your word. You just lit a village on fire. I that's enjoy a, your moral relativism there. Thank you. That, no, that's a good point, Tom, because I think that's, I don't know, I wasn't in, obviously, this other Woodstock game, but all of the characters have their own goals and motives and alignments and ways of seeing the world. And you might all agree that we're going to let this guy go, but I don't agree with that. So I'm going to take my anger out upon this guy, Brian Revenge. And then that can also kind of work because then the seed that you've sown is the inner party conflict that may or may not start to happen. Like we're seeing in our Woodstock game with Bonnie's character, Ojin, beginning to make pacts with Gadanathwa, right? Which is creating a surprising amount of inter-party conflict, you know? But fuels some really good role play, though, I think, you know? So it's, it bears fruit in that way, too, not just from the DM side. I feel like that's going fairly well. It could have gone much worse. It could have gone much, much worse. No <laughs> one's dead. We're you know. coming to we're coming to some uh yes to it's a cold war it's not a hot war <laughs> on the issue of the party's alignment at play for me I actually don't care what the party's alignment is as far as our other parties going to take action against them that is actually doesn't factor in in that case it would factor into my decision if I was basing XP on playing your alignment it might factor into my decision to give them inspiration or not for playing their character. But is this other party going to react to you? It has nothing to do with what your alignment is or what your character is. It has to do with, does this NPC feel personally aggrieved by what you did? And do they take it as a big enough uh, violation that they're going to come risk their lives to try to kill you? So to me, it's more a matter of how the world interacts with the party, not so much what the party's character is. I mean, you know, you can be chaotic evil and do these things. That doesn't necessarily mean that other people aren't going to take offense just because, you know, well, oh, yeah, well, he's just that kind of asshole. We're not going to go after him. Oh, yeah, no, no. I Yeah, I was meaning more just in terms of like another way in which it can start to sow uh bear fruit from the, from the seeds that are sown. But I uh, know I think that's very fair because – no party takes away the, the boons and the blessings of the village they saved. They'll still accept the free drinks and the free lodging and the, yeah. the glory from the people, right? So that's for being the hero. So if you're going to be the heel instead of the face, you got to kind of accept the jabs as well, right? The world doesn't know your alignment. The, only, the world only knows your actions. Your actions, yeah. Well, I think alignment's important in terms of if this – these actions are not fluid with the story. 
or how the character has been played or conceptualized. So, for example, I'm a lawful good paladin. The the NPC surrenders and he, that NPC spills their guts and then I decapitate them with a broadsword. I go, well, you know, that was the best move to make. He would have sort of gone on to kill more villagers. I think I've heard you make that <laughs> argument as a good character, if not a lawful good character. Chaotic good and lawful good are miles apart. I know I'm opening up the Pandora's <laughs> box of alignments. That's not what I want to do. But in terms of the story, at that point, then, then perhaps there is some repercussions. Perhaps that's sowing the seeds of uh, temptation and evil in that mm-hmm. character. That's like the precursor to their fall from grace. Yeah. And it's just one of those things where bec- because I'm leaving alignment up to the player, like my interest is much less in is it true to their character and more in does it piss off the NPCs. But I see what you're saying. Like, because you're playing, you're more building the story around who the characters are. Whereas I'm just playing the world as the world that the players are interacting with. So I don't necessarily care about the players' internal motivations as far as how the world's going to respond. I'm only playing from the point of view of, oh, well, does does a power broker take offense to that? Well, now you've got to deal with them. That's like all, in the way I'm running the game, that's all I'm really concerned with. Mm. So what do you do with a party that never takes surrender? I know we talked about this as a bugaboo before. The party well, that wants to kill know, everything until it's three uh, times dead. Fight on, my murder hobos. Fight on. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm sorry. That's something they would quickly get a reputation for. Mm. And if any, honestly, and in all fairness, intelligent opponents are going to be like, well, you know what? I am going for broke because these guys are going to hack me down no matter what. I give the information, they'll hack me down. I tell them where grandma's been kidnapped to, they're going to hack me down. Nope, I'm going to go down swinging it, and I'm taking some teeth with me. Yeah, that's true. And I like to, because you mentioned that in, in your earlier answer, and I, I agree with that, because you mentioned the Sun Tzu thing. Always give your enemy's army a way to escape. Because if you don't, if they're trapped, they're going to fight all the harder and may find a way to defeat you, or at least inflict heavy casualties on you. That is exactly what you're talking about, right? If you get the reputation of, okay, yeah. every time we fight, we murder everybody, well, you know, then everyone's going to fight as if you're going to murder them if they don't you know, kick your ass. That's a hundred percent true. I mean, like, why, why am I going to bother surrendering? There, there's no, there's no motivation other than death. And you know what? I don't know how many NPCs that you have that are, you know, fatalists. They're like, well, <laughs> you know, I did some bad shit and I have this coming. No, these guys want to live. Even the undead don't want to be sent to oblivion. They're already dead unless they're mindless. Well, it's funny because people say how stupid, like, people basically say how stupid animals or things like that would always fight to the death. If you look at actual animal combat, they never fight to the death. Animals generally get the hell out of a fight as soon as they feel like they're in danger in it. They, they don't stick around and try to fight to the last, fight to the last wolf or the last lion. They're like, oh, Oh, no, these guys are hitting us back. Okay, let's run away. That's how animals with yeah. low intelligence actually handle a fight. Yeah, that if they're not instinct. cornered, if they have if they have an avenue yeah. of escape, right? So if they don't, which, you know, anyone who has ran a D&D game, good luck with your party not cornering the villain. <laughs> like so, you know, like there's only so many ways I can I can move unless I can uh, teleport or dimension door or something. So yeah, so if you're if you're cornered, like there's there's very little you can do at that point unless you're going to surrender. And I think that's when intelligence matters because the villain doesn't want to die, right? They're all about power, and power ends when they're dead. So they're going to surrender even if it's just a ruse. But let me flip this on its head. If either you've run into a uh, party member in one of your games 
that wants to get a surrender or attempt a redemption on a positively unredeemable character. I thought that happened a couple of times, actually. Huh. Well, that raises that whole question of what happens after they surrender, right? Because, you know, if it's an unredeemable character, well, what does leaving this person alive do? Mm. I think it's fair. I think there's definitely characters who are almost always going to want to not kill the big bad. But okay, so then what do you do with them? What does the party do with them? I will say, I, I think this harkens back a little bit to when we talked about how different genres of game are going to affect problem solving and how the players react to the world. Mm. You know, that's going to be a lot more of a, uh, a problem in a lot of D&D groups, whereas if it's a superhero group or if it's in our Call of Cthulhu, you know, like you're going to try to bring them into the police or something, if possible, <laughs> you know, maybe... But, you know, I think I think the genre of your of your uh, role playing game can change that because it's going to change how you're thinking about the world and then how you're interacting with it. Right. As opposed to like a D&D where I have a sword and I can take care of problems with it. <laughs> you know? As opposed to, you know, Call of Cthulhu, where it's like, yeah, I have a sword and it, it really doesn't help me that much in this situation. Cthulhu still doesn't care. I'm insane. <laughs> It breaks yeah. my heart. I um, can't solve my problem in this universe with dynamite. You can try. You can certainly try. I mean, at the same time, I guess the caveat there is, well, but in the story, they beat Cthulhu by ramming a freighter into his head. So, I mean, in the in the actual Lovecraftian story, for all we talk about how these Lovecraftian entities are impervious to mortal means, they just drove a, a ship into it, and it went back to sleep. So, I mean, <laughs> you know, it's like there's that whole argument, well, what is Lovecraftian? You know, there's, okay. Some people will say to be Lovecraftian, it's got to be something that humans cannot touch. But in his most famous stories, Freighter into the head. Hey, look, we're the learning dome. a lot. We're learning a lot about concussions. You know, I mean, they're right. not anything to a lot of. I had one this stuff. year. I believe it. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, but like, so if you have a party who who doesn't take surrenders, who just isn't, who wants to kill everything, do you do anything to brush them back, or do you just make that part of the game you're playing? Well, I want to throw back kind of what Dave was saying with the the kind of superhero vibe. That is a kind of a, a little bit of a reverse of the situation where there's times where you've cornered a villain who needs to freaking die. Like, this is a terrible right. person. And they're like, no, no, no. We'll bring him in, read him his rights, you know, get him an attorney. Like, what? He's plea bargaining? What? Like, that's a whole different dynamic. And are you going to end up punishing your party in that game world for not following the structure of the law that's there? Versus more of a and d setting where the villain takes the knee and that villain's like, oh my god, these people are this stupid. They're going to let me go. I can't my answer this. is a, an absolute yes. I will completely alter how I rule that <clears throat> if we're playing, let's say, a superhero RPG over a D&D game. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I think that's what that's one of the big things that separates it is it creates that stark contrast. And if you don't have that it starts to marshmallow out because you're usually based in some sort of quote real world with a superhero RPG. Yeah. So it starts to completely. So you, I mean, you, you could do murder hobos, but then you start to run into the whole Alan Moore idea and things like the boys where it's this becomes this fascist regime of people like who watches the Watchmen kind of thing. Right. I also think the other side to that is if the villains surrender, like, and then it's like, like, I know, Tony, I've played with you before. You're pretty good at making, like I said before, you're pretty good at making that argument of, look, this guy's impossible. He needs to die. He just needs, this just needs to die. End of story. Kill it on his knees. Well, I think actually, you said that about tavern keepers, even. 
I'm not sure. I, I can't remember. It might have been a tavern keeper. That there. was the worst mutton ask I've for, ever Yeah, asked for too much silver for that piece of eggplant. I can't, I'm not sure. Anyway. It's a, it's a more interesting story if you play out what happens next, you know? Okay, so granted, now if they just let the bad guy go and like, okay, the bad guy's like some orc warlord, he just comes back with an even bigger orc army. Yeah, no, that's stupid. But so, okay, so what does the party do with them? You know, what authorities do they take them to? How do those authorities handle this thing? That mm. is actually kind of an interesting story. And maybe you do wind up with a redemption arc, Tony, as you mentioned before, where, you know, maybe that 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 villain who's too evil to live winds up living. At the same time, if you're talking about something like, you know, a warlord's maybe easier. OK, that's just like a warrior back in the army. If it's someone who's like a death cleric, you know, once they long rest, they're going to get back these super powered spells are going to get back wish or whatever. It becomes oh. a lot harder to kind of do that. With. <laughs> yeah. What do you do? Like you can create the plastic prison suspended in the middle of nowhere for <laughs> Magneto, right? With no metal. But like, what the fuck you do with the guy who memorized wish? Right? wish like. You, you, you trap him with something that keeps him from getting his spells back. That's what you, you do. Keep you, them in spell hold. Jeez. Well, spell hold? It was a giant anti-magic wizard prison. It's like my worst nightmare. Or one of them. Bat and bed bugs. <laughs> no, that but it was, is, that is an interesting thought, Thorne. Like, because it does, it's the what next thing. And I think that has to do a lot with what does your world look like, you know? Yeah. Because I mean, it's it's on and it's on both of you though. Because if the party leaves the villain alive and takes some responsibility for him, if the party just lets the villain run off into the woods to continue his schemes, <laughs> they're going to get they're, oh they're just going to get villain 2.0. Yeah, the, the villain's coming back and now he knows you better. You know, it's it's villain two electric boogaloo at that point. But if the party <laughs> takes the villain and they keep him and they they keep him you know under wraps and they take him to the proper authorities and they find a way to dispose of the super powerful character, well now it's on you as the DM to not not just have the villain pop back up as villain too. You know, it's on you as a DM to react to that in a way that makes sense. Maybe that villain comes up later because the party has to do a whole Loki situation where they need something the villain knows about to thwart the next big bad. And they have to, you know, maybe it's a silence of the lambs where they, where they, where they talk to the villain mm. and get clues from him about how do I, how do I stop this other person who's doing this, some of the things you were what doing. you did. Yeah. Or maybe it's like, a, or I mean, he eats your face. <laughs> Well, but think about Dragon Age, right? Uh, what's his name? The one guy in Dragon Age, the one who was like the bastard who like usurped the kingdom and betrayed everybody, and then he's in your team. Logan. Logan. Yes, thank you. Logan is one of the he is one of the better twists in that game. As much as you want to kill him from the get go, he has a huge role to play in that story. You know, that's a more interesting story. Well, yeah, you- uh, how about the? Uh- I don't know if this is a spoiler, but for from Zack Snyder's Justice League, mm. and they had the epilogue part, which I still I thought they were cool parts, but I felt they still were very disjointed from the movie. I'm just going to leave it at that. <laughs> but what did they show at the end? They show the whole kind of like I think the flashpoint idea where they're in that kind of hellscape where Superman has kind of turned, and one of Batman's allies is seemingly the Joker at that point. Because the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? Yeah, and that does look pretty interesting. Yeah, it does look pretty cool, depending on how you feel about that version of the Joker. I, I tell you what, just not, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole. I hated the Jared Leto Joker. I kind of dug what he was doing in that scene. I, so I hear you. Yeah. I'm going to leave it at that. 
And I just, there you go. I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole, though. <laughs> it felt more like a Joker than what he yes. did in Suicide yeah. Squad. Yeah. Suicide Squad felt more like just, you know, kind of super cool dude. This yeah, felt well, more like a Joker. Thug okay. guy. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. So, 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 Tony, you mentioned before that you actually had a character who redeemed the, where you had a, a redemption arc with the villain. How does that play out? In that situation, certain conditions have to happen. Like, the villain didn't then just roll out of bed, but like, well... <laughs> I've done a whole mess of evil things. I've killed some people, <laughs> some women, some children, some puppies. And holy crap, I had it all wrong. I'm good now. Like, you know, they rolled out of bed and, you know, they got their COVID vaccine and they're feeling fantastic. No, not quite at all. I had that villain go on quests to achieve the redemption. And I had the hero, air quotes, accompany the villain on this to see that that happened. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So it wasn't just that the villain could kind of help. Because like, when I think of a classic redemption arc, it's usually, okay, the villain was really bad. Now the villain is cowed somehow. He's on his knees. He's in the prison or whatever. But now the good guys need to work with the villain because something the villain knows is the key to the next thing they have to do. And then through that process, the villain helps them. The villain stops being a total asshole. And eventually the villain is now one of your friends. I mean, that I think happens yeah, kind of across... Yeah, you're you're literally like all I'm thinking right now is the way that that you mentioned it earlier, the way that they played Loki within the MCU. Yeah, where it was constantly, he's the worst, but then he's there helping you. He's helping Thor, and then he's trying to kill him, and then he's help, and then he sacrifices himself to try to say, like, oh my god, dude. Like, <laughs> okay. Fine. All right. That last moment where he died fighting Thanos, I was convinced was a ruse because that felt so outside of his character. In this one moment, he's going to grow a pair and come out the toughest guy they've ever met and be like, aha! No, but they were planting. And then I think this is a good this is a good tip if we're talking about this redemption arc of the villain and how do you handle that. I think they were doing exactly what you should do in your story is you, they were planting those seeds piece by piece by piece uh, through the movies that Loki would, when push came to shove, he would step up. Not always in the best way, but he would, you know? Like, he would help Thor. He would, you know, say, oh my God, what did I do by letting the Chitauri in kind of thing and try to try to get back to that, you know? Yes, slight moral fupa there. Yes, letting the aliens attack New York. That was well. He kind really, of. What I'm saying, like, he deserved house arrest for that, right? But he goes Thank back you. to my. I'm gonna call it. I got a trademark here. Here we go. So I had my triangle of evil, right? Monsters, villains, and amorphous organizations. Now, the three-legged stool of defeat. Okay, <laughs> which is retreat, right? Which Loki has done. He retreats all the goddamn time, right? Surrender, absolutely, the end of Avengers 1 surrenders, right? And then Checkmate, which is where he really shines, which is he's constantly playing the game. He's He might be running or, or being surrendering or retreating, but he has his plan in place as to where the next pieces are going to fall. You know what I'm saying? So the three-legged stool of defeat. Or the three-legged stool of villainy. I don't know which one. I don't know. <laughs> the three, I like the three-legged stool of villainy. Like, right. you know, that is the oh, hallmark. The, the tick went half. <laughs> <laughs> that is kind of the hallmark of a great villain, though, right? I mean, yeah. check me. 
The, yeah. A great villain knows how to put the heroes in checkmate. The, okay, yeah, you want to kill me, but you can't, and here's why. Because oh, I've already outsmarted you on this front. I've got another another trick up my sleeve. I've got an ace in my hole, and you are you're, you're not going to kill me. I know that. You, so we're gonna we're gonna figure out another way. You're gonna take me in or something. Oh whatever. How adorable. And I'm gonna get out of this because I've got you in checkmate. The trick is that's hard to do because you yeah. need to think like a villain mastermind in order to pull that kind of thing off. And that's really hard. Yeah. I mean, how many of us, how many of us have played like somebody with a 20 intelligence and like we can't figure out like what to get how to get dinner together? You know, like, you can't figure just, out the Happy Meal, the, the, the yeah, happy puzzle like, when you got to unlock a door. Yeah, I'm playing a 20 charisma person and I'm like, I don't uh, I don't know. He says something charismatic to the troll. <laughs> uh, you know? I, I don't think Ronar seduced anybody in that game. I mean, no. you completely destroyed the trope. Like, it came crashing down around this. No, no, I think it could be a lot of things. It was, uh, you know, seduction comes in many ways, you know. And were you but even he, playing a bard? <laughs> he was a wheeler dealer, you he know? Played he played the long game. He was a wheeler dealer. <laughs> all, all I'm saying is you had, like, a 22 charisma, and you didn't even get him on first base with anyone. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> he was too sickly. I mean, that, that is true. I mean, you know, it's, he, he was actively poxy, you know, uh, he was spitting up blood the entire time. Yeah. That probably hurt his luck with the ladies. And I didn't feel like doing the Doc Holliday Val Kilmer kind of feel, you know, I could have gone that route, you know, but that's it's it's never wrong. It's, that's it's a never a character. bad time to play Val Kilmer's Doc Holliday. That's a different character. I, <laughs> I, I do not think Val Kilmer is Batman. Right. No, that's a Val Kilmer as Doc Holliday. Yes. Val Kilmer as Batman. No. I liked Val yeah. Kilmer as Batman. Uh, All right, we can't go down. We can't go down these. Nah, I can't holes. back you on that. Dave, Speaking sorry. of villains, <laughs> I'll throw it out to the audience. You guys, let us know. We'll do like a live stream sometime, and you can just ask us Q and A's about these weird rabbit hole questions. But we won't do it on the episodes here. Hot takes. The hot takes episode. Hot, yeah, just what do we think about different movies and books and all? Yeah, here's our bombshells. Coming 2023, yes. I mean, I have had situations where there was an unredeemable villain and the hero didn't want to kill them. The villain looked at that situation and said, you know what? All right, this this hero is going to beat my ass. All right, I accept banishment. And they walked off and did not return. You didn't didn't bring them in in some way later? Not at all? There There was a situation where the paladin basically told the lich, to get out of town and he was like um okay and he left because that was the best survival based decision to make <laughs> well i guess also the just thinking yeah how many how many more years does this guy really have left he's a paladin what 30 40 years he dies of old age i'm still a witch i'll come back then <laughs> right but i'm just saying Okay, if my if me returning to this kingdom and pulling shenanigans means my absolute destruction and my phylactera are getting broken like Voldemort's nose that doesn't exist, then they're gonna bounce. Mm-hmm. And it is, you know, if if you constantly bring that guy back, you give the players no incentive to let anyone go, right? I mean, you need to respect the surrenders, otherwise the players will never will never take a surrender, especially at low level. Like if you treat if you teach the players at low level that anytime they accept the surrender they will get betrayed, your players will murder hobo everything in the game for the next twenty levels. That is a very good point. Yes. Again, you teach them the game that you're you're playing that you're running, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. And part of that is basically how does the world react to what they do? If they if they do something you like and the world reacts positively to it, they'll do more of that thing. If not, they're going to do more of what you don't want them to do. And it's not all up to you, but it's how does the world react to them? You teach them how to play. You teach them how the world's going to react to these choices. Yeah. I don't know why this popped in my head, Tony, as you were talking about that. I, th- I think just because of the redemption arc idea, but this just popped in my head. It was from an, like one of the Superman cartoons uh, from back in the day. Uh, not that far back in the day, but, you know, maybe the adventures Side of Superman. 41. Go ahead. <laughs> not that one. Not that one. Um, but Lex Luthor actually achieves the ability to gain Superman's powers at one point. And what happens is he then sees the world as Superman sees it. So the way that they show this is like because of Superman's incredible sight and all of this, he can see all of the the organisms and stuff. And in essence, how it's it's weird, but how life is all connected and we're all part of this kind of web. Um, And at that point, Lex kind of falls down and he realizes what like why Superman is the way he is. And he kind of accepts his defeat. I don't think he necessarily redeems himself because they bring him back as a villain all the time. Right. But that is, I don't know why it came, it, uh, it came up for me, but it just popped in my head in a way that it shows the villain once they've achieved what they think they want, that it's something completely different and it causes them to then see the world differently and maybe, you know, help the heroes or something. Well, that's funny you say that because Lex Luthor ultimately, uh, one of his biggest grievances with Superman is the fact that he wants to be Superman. So in that moment where he had chained that kind of power and had that moment, I feel like one of his character arc goals would have been achieved. Yeah. But I mean, on the Thorns point, yeah, I feel like you can certainly teach the players uh, how uh, surrenders versus executing all your foes is handled by the reactions of the NPCs in it. I mean, do you come back to a village yeah. of cheering fans, you know, and flowers are coming down, and there's roses and cigars and brandy, or are they all hiding inside because they're terrified of you? And are they trying to plot your death because they know they can't trust you because you're just as unstable as the villains were? It's a, it's a, it's a good point. Uh, Matt Colville brings it up in his campaign world. He, uh, he always likes to have villagers not like the adventurers because adventurers bring trouble. So they're always distrustful of them in the same way of like, oh, cool, heroes are in the city. So now there's going to be supervillains and escalation and that kind of stuff. So, you know, uh, so they're generally in his in his games, very distrustful of adventurers until like they probably win them over and whatever do the hero arc. But, you know, I thought it was a cool uh, twist on that. It's an interesting take. I feel like I've seen it a lot now. Because there's a lot of pop culture since about the 90s that it, that, that uses that idea, right? Yeah. It's yeah. up there with, well, how do, how would superheroes really act? Like enormous assholes. Yeah. It's that whole thing of, you know, you can't have heroes because heroes bring the supervillains. Which doesn't really make sense if you think about it. You know, we have superheroes, so now we're attracting supervillains. Like there's just some natural cosmic balance. Nothing else works that way. I that mean, makes <laughs> sense. No, I think it does. I, and I think Chris Nolan's Batman did it well. You know, he said, you show up in a mask and now other people are showing up in a mask because it's like um, base, it's like in baseball. Right. What are they throwing fastballs at now? 101, 102 miles per hour. That was unheard of. 
it's not because all of a sudden humans are so much stronger or, oh, the training is so much better as much as our collective consciousness says, oh, that's totally doable. So now I don't mentally limit myself to being able to achieve that. So in essence, it just escalates itself because we all kind of agree on it. If that's all Christopher Nolan's take did, I, 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 I'd be there for it, but it's not. Like Christopher Nolan's take, and also the Iron Man take, because Marvel did this in the Iron Man movies, is yeah. that yeah. by having someone show up and be an open superhero, you cause basically other people to show up just to prove to that superhero that he's not super enough, he's not good enough to be a superhero, and that they're going to be supervillains just to check him. I actually consider that a plot hole. I think okay. now, if you take something like uh, the Spider-Man Homecoming Vulture villain, where Vulture is basically someone who was, that's uh, Michael Keaton plays yeah, it, yeah, yeah, and yeah. he was a, on the cleanup cruise going through New York after the Chitauri attack. He gets a hold of a lot of Chitauri tech. He, he and his buddies have their own problems. They're not making ends meet, so they turn into villains because of that. That is actually character-driven. Like, to me, that is, okay, your character had an honest problem, a thing with their life where now it made more sense for them to be villains than heroes. To say, like, you have someone like the Joker from Batman, who... Heath Ledger played an amazing Joker. Do not get me wrong. I love that movie. Love that character. I consider his creation a plot hole. He just shows up just to be a dick to Batman. Like, that is not a good enough reason for a villain. <laughs> like, like it's, it's the same thing with uh, within Iron Man 2 when you have, um, what's his name? Not Ironmonger. That's Iron Man 1. Iron Man 1, Ironmonger made sense as a villain. You mean Whiplash. Um, yeah, Whiplash. Whiplash. Yeah. Yeah, because Whiplash is, you know, basically just showing up to take Tony Stark down a peg. I don't think taking someone down a peg really drives you well, to that peak of human performance. I just, I, guys, I, I mean, I, they I had more, notes here. There was obviously more to it than that with some of the their fathers and stuff. Anyway, not a bad point though, actually, Lauren. I think that that's actually a you know make it more character driven. Make it make internal sense within your world. Why is this person doing this? I mean, it's just a matter of personal DM preference, too, because you can do both. Like I said, the Christopher Nolan movies are very good, especially the one with Heath Ledger. Yeah. So as yeah. much as I'm knocking the way that character starts, great character. And, you know, you never really know his motives. So maybe he has bet other motives. He just never Some reveals them. Oh, great. Just want to see the world burn. But to me, yeah, yeah, you see, to, to, you need to see the world a certain way for that to be a satisfying reason for you. And I think that certain way is very tied up in the 90s, late 90s, pessimistic kind of a post-conservative view of the world. It's very much the kind of the, the Dark Knight Returns kind of view of the world, which is what the movie was anyway. Sure, sure. sure. I, I want to see a more personal motive for my villain. My villain is driven by their own personal, not just by showing someone else up, not just by, you know, flipping off society. No, they've got a real reason. Things, something that really motivates them. They have a real thing to gain or lose. I think that, to me, is how I want to run my villains. More personal motivation than story motivation. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I was gonna make a joke about Kristen Bale showing up and throat lozenges going up 300% in sales, but like I missed that like six lines ago. Well, wait until Tom um, Hardy shows up and they go up a thousand percent. Well, I didn't even understand him. Actually, I liked Bane. All right. I, I didn't say that. Where's the Joker? Uh, Where is he? Yeah, yeah. That hurts my throat even listening to you do that. But it sounds like honestly, adventurers in D&D by that perspective are a lot like mutants in the 1990s, like how they were looked upon. Like, oh, here's someone with superpowers. They can be super helpful. But man, do I not trust you? No way. Uh-uh. No, he, he could fly. And that does not work for it's you. It's a very- and you know, there's a lot of plot holes. 
it's a very meta approach is, is my point. Like if you're just, a, if you're just a village getting attacked by goblins and adventurers show up to deal with your goblin problem, you're probably going to be happy they're there. If, if, if you're coming in and saying, well, they don't trust you because they don't trust adventurers in general, you're saying they've had a lot of experience with adventurers. This is a very adventurer savvy town that they know the goblins are actually better to leave alone than have adventurers <laughs> start traipsing through and kill them all. Sorry, Tony. I mean, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. She that starts with goblins start and an all... evil cleric shows up and they've got <laughs> liches everywhere. Yeah. You can't trust adventurers. You can't trust mutants unless they're people who got their powers by science. In which case, we love the Human Torch. He is a great guy. If he was a mutant, we couldn't stand him. That's a plot hole. Now you're now you're seeing a technocrat's way. My Marvel my Marvel hero. That is exactly how he sees the world. All this other stuff is bullshit technology. That's the only thing you can trust. It's kind of like the riddle of steel, you know, ten thousand years in the future. Well, then it, the final plot hole is the Joker's minions because this guy is chaotic yes. evil and oh, these yeah. guys would fall on their sword on a dime for him. Oh, you shot Nick because he he brought you two shots of espresso. Oh, my <laughs> asshole, fuck Nick. <laughs> Well, and this is this that tension between it shows you a, a great story to tell doesn't need to be totally tight because like the opening heist in Batman Returns, where every bag, every crook is shooting the other crook to cut down the number of people who need to who can split the money. Like, how many crooks does it take before you start realizing, hold on, who says he's going to leave me alive? But right. But the big trick is the whole time you're going, oh, yeah, this makes complete sense and is very consistent and I'm completely enmeshed in it. Until you start to step back, but that's a great, it's a great way of, that's a, it's a good point. Because when you're in yeah. it, it's making sense. And of course, yeah, this is what we have to do. And then you step back and go, wait, 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 wait. Why am it, I working with this guy? It's proof that <laughs> plot holes aren't the end of the world for your story. And that goes for DMing too. You can DM, if you, have, if you have a cool thing going on and the players are into it, you can, you can, you can roll over a couple plot holes. And I think that's a great example of it. Well, yeah, because yeah, sure. they'll bill it a player who's delivering an A plus performance. Yeah. Then, then sure, yeah. Plot hole away. You get to detract from the fact, like, oh my God, he's so awesome. Like, look, look at this stunt. He's dressed like a nurse and he's trying to use a detonator and it's not working now. Like, how funny that is. You're not thinking of anything else that doesn't make sense in that movie. It was a great scene. Like, it's just so a great scene. The improv that was fantastic. <laughs> It was. And I guess that's Tony's point is like in like last episode, Tony, you made a real point about how NPCs, how important NPCs are. I guess not two episodes ago, but there it is again. Right. I mean, you can basically roll over any plot hole with a great NPC. People will go with it if they like that guy. That's I, I think that's so true. I think that's so true. So, Tony, do you have anything else on your list you wanted to get to? No, I think that's it. You know, never let anybody surrender. That's one of my key takeaways from this episode. <laughs> too dangerous to be left alive. Don't he's just go mace, into he's a window. Break out. Always Mace Windu. Well, you know, I, if I was in the, if I was in the DC universe instead of the Marvel universe, I, that would be a hundred percent my perspective on things. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I do want to, because Tony, as a player, you are one who tends to kill. You you tend to, you, you you do tend to want to kill the villains more often. I find. How do you how do you find it when the when when the DM doesn't want you to do that or kind of like poo-poo's it or, or or otherwise stops you from doing it? Well. You know, it's kind of like, okay, we had that scene, we're playing Call of Cthulhu, and I wanted to blow those mobsters to the ninth circle of hell. Like, seriously, they're, they're, they came in there like, ah, see, we're going to take this money. And I'm like, we have 9,000 guns in this room. <laughs> There's like six of us. We got to set some 1920. 
I I have fifteen hundred dollars worth of guns. Go ahead. <laughs> we got to set some scenes. So this is Call Cthulhu. The party is investigating the mysterious death of her professor. They're in the professor's house. The professor had some gambling debts. The party has found a thousand dollars in the house, along with evidence the professor uh, was forging uh, was forging books and selling the originals. And then the professor's mob contacts show up to collect money from him. They've heard he's dead. They don't believe he's dead. Even if he's dead, they're not willing to accept it. They want them. They want to collect his money. So they shake down the party for their for the thousand dollars and maybe more. And yes, Officer not McGavin. 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 Officer McGavin. Thank you. Officer McGavin has in fact turned into a gun nut since his exposure to the Cthulhu mythos. And he does have Tommy guns and shotguns. And these gangsters got like you know they got like they got like six shooters in their pockets. They're the they're the leg breakers. They're not the assassins. But they're talking a big game about how you know hey well maybe the assassins got to come see you. And yeah, I mean, to, to Officer McGavin did, um, he got talked down from just putting some holes in these dudes because the party almost certainly could have blown them the Swiss cheese. Well, yeah, but that goes back to my point earlier where the genre of game is going to change how you're approaching it and your problem solving because you are going to be in that world. And in that world, we're normal people. And the mafia is the syndicate. It's an organized crime that has God knows how many people that can get to us and we're just normal people in D and D land. I don't care because I'll take a short rest and then I'll kick your ass all over again. Send another <laughs> wave of, of Goombas at me. Right. Or in, uh, hey. you know, in Marvel or something, I'm not worried about them taking revenge on me in terms of physical violence. So I think it changes how you approach and problem solve depending on, on what the world, again, what the world is teaching you. So if you DMs at home are wondering how I got the party to respect these things, uh, because obviously this is not the party of many DMs play with many DMs in a lot of games that would have ended up in a firefight. I made it clear to the party that there would be legal repercussions like the, you know, the, the gangsters mentioned, oh, yeah, you want to shoot us here in the middle of a of, of an urban street. You know, eight o'clock at night, you want to open, you want, you want to shoot us. You think the cops are going to be okay with that? Your neighbors are going to be okay with that? You don't think that's going to be problems? And two was the idea that they that they said, yeah, and you know, hey, yeah, you know, we we're the guys who come and talk to you. We talk to you. We collect the money. We're not the people who come and you know just uh, just knock you off. We're not the ones who put C4 on your truck. You know, that's all I'm saying. We're not the one. We're not the ones who blow your truck up when you go to start it. We're not the <laughs> we're, we're not the ones who take you out when you're not looking. So I there was love that, that threat. truck. Uh, yeah, I made clear to the party how this could go wrong if they did just start shooting in the middle of Arkham. You know, police would be called. There would be an investigation. Officer McAvitt is not loved by the local sheriff at this point in time, at least not yet. So, like, they had stuff to lose. I will I will say, too, just to go back to a point here, where with Tony as a player versus DM, because as a player, as we've seen, he oftentimes is the— yeah, we should probably end this guy, this person, whatever, right? As a DM, though, he opens up those those opportunities to, yeah. how are you going to handle this? So it's very interesting to see how you shift between player and DM tone, and you you really do allow – my guess is because as a DM, you're trying to allow the players to respond to your world as opposed to your driving it in the same way. Well, how the world operates, too, is really a, an enormous factor here because, okay, first of all, mobsters are formidable in this in this universe. Mm. They're not just like, oh, some obnoxious CR 1.5 monsters. These guys could – I come out of the bathroom, pull up my fly, someone could shoot me in the face, and I'm dead. And that's how the system works, number one. Number two, yeah, Thorne's correct. I actually had that on my notes. Um, 
if I whipped out my Tommy gun and unloaded it on these two clowns, there would have been questions. It would have been in the paper. It would have gotten a lot of attention that would have been obnoxious at best. It's and Massachusetts, finally, not Chicago. I, <laughs> that'd be fine. I could go slider and gun someone down. Well, you know, I mean, keep in mind, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre made national news in Chicago. Even in Chicago, that caused entire police task force to come after the mafia. The Chicago it, it, way. It, it happened, but it was, was not free of consequence. There were real Absolutely. problems for the mafia after doing that. Like, Absolutely. But, oh, I know you're dying to play an Al Capone as an NPC. And finally, the, the real killer question here was what was a thousand dollars is a ton of money in this system but the real question is is it worth us having to deal with the mafia at the same time where we're also confronting elder spawns from another dimension <laughs> yeah absolutely not to mention you know who do you think the mafia is you know what elder spawns do you think the mafia is working with oh i'm not gonna go down that road yet you, you ask me if, I want to, if, I, if I, you say i'm dying to play al capone as an npc yeah what if al capone is an npc with a book you know, with, with a black book somewhere or something. Oh, Jesus, right? He's like elder, Al Capone, elder, elder god Al Capone. Yeah, what if Al Capone's, you know, hooch is actually some elder god created thing that's mutating people across the eastern seaboard, huh? Huh? Well, yeah, well, yeah, well then we... was going to be the cult leader. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he didn't, he didn't go mad from syphilis, black book, ladies and gentlemen. That's Dude, a right real itself. start. Awesome. Good Good point. Good point. There it is. <laughs> All right, guys, we've been going on for a little while here. So I'm going to wrap up with some final thoughts. You know, how do you handle uh, surrenders, running away and how the peace and how the PCs themselves interact with it? I think that surrender really is indicative on the environment. Is this going to be a legal issue? Like if you're in the modern times or are you in D&D where it's like the Wild West and it's like, you know, you have a license to kill. Also, I think it should stay consistent with the character's motivations. If you're a uh, Shining Knight Paladin and you're decapitating somebody that you just gave your word to, uh, I would handle that with story methods and be like, hey, you know what? You're sliding <laughs> into darkness. And this is where it began. As you're looking back on your life, you're like, oh, man, I'm an anti-Paladin. How did this happen? Well, let me tell you. And, and then... An unscripted surrender can be a good opportunity for a DM to throw in some plot devices that you're looking for an opportunity. Maybe you would have yeah. slid that in at the bar. The barkeep's like, oh, so barkeep, have you heard any good tales? Use it there. It's less cliche. I mean, that's a great point. I mean, no one has better clues than the than the bad guy who surrenders and opens and starts talking, right? You want to deliver there some exposition about what's Rather going than, on. You know, that barkeep that's nearly omniscient at a minor level. <laughs> oh, what's, well, a lot what's of going on are. with that dungeon? That, yeah, that, they that know stuff, Yeah, necromancer. Ah, he knows. They know stuff. All right. So I think I'm going to go back to my point from last week to, uh, to make intelligence matter again. So the intelligence of the monster, the villain, whatever, is going to change what they're going to do. Are they going to fight to the death in a slugfest? Are they going to run away? Are they going to surrender? That's going to very much matter as to who they are. My second point is my three-legged stool of villainy. So you have retreat, <laughs> you have surrender, and checkmate. And checkmate is where they might be retreating or surrendering, but they have plans. They're trying to get something out later on. And my point with that was uh, the hags uh, from Curse of Straw at Old, Bold, Old Bone Grinder. I did not know how that 
was going to go when the party stormed Old Old Bone Grinder. Uh, It started out as them just kind of like talking to them on the first floor and then it erupted into into violence. (laughs) And I, you know, through through what happened, the, the two hags, one of them died, two hags tried to retreat. They made themselves invisible. They retreated. They went to Velaki and they went to the Vokter house and they started. I then had another session to plan. So I started to do some machinations with the voodoo dolls and with them uh, ponying up with Lady Vokter, which brought Lady Vokter into. So that was a way to introduce her when the players got to Velaki. Then they get to them in Velaki and I have the night hag escape again. They've killed the second daughter. Now they escape again. And now I go, okay, what's she doing? Well, she's going to go to Babalis. And just so I was responding to what the players were doing while building this kind of retreat, checkmate kind of feel until she finally died. And and there we are. But uh, yeah, so respond rather than react to how the party is going. I'll thwarted those plans, brother. Big time. Yeah, he just walked in, closed the door and started swinging. Four leg drops later, it was all over. I mean, and for me, I'm going to reiterate what Dave just said there. You know, you want to bring intelligence to how your monsters, your NPCs, your villains are handling what the party's doing. You know, I mean, realistically, no character is going to once the battle starts to go against the character, they're not likely to sit there and just take their death. You know, no one wants to hang in a fight until they're dead. They see it starts going against them, and they try to get out of there. Now, in, in D&D, it's fine to have a lot of fights kind of go to the death. Often the NPCs all get killed before you even realize that they're there, or that you even realize that they're losing the fight. But if you have a situation where kind of you have some high hit point NPCs, and the fight's against them, and now it's clearly just going to be a matter of how many rounds do the party have to beat up on them before they die... Consider having those NPCs surrender or run away. Also love the idea of, you know, the three-legged stool of villainy that's <laughs> running away. Because here's the deal. Running away, like we talked about, I will do the running away thing early with bigger bads because it gives the party a taste of someone there is tougher than you. And it kind of makes them want, usually, most parties, not necessarily the Woodstock Wanderers, but most parties, it makes them want to go fight that guy later. They, they, there's a real sense of accomplishment when you finally kill that guy who smacked you down at level one to three, and now at level nine you can take it, you can take him out, and okay, now you really feel like you progressed, you've got more powerful, and you've done some good in the world. Beyond that, you know, the the surrender idea, just surrender leads to a lot of really cool story opportunities. So you know, you can have characters retreat and get them out of the fight and to come back later as recurring villains that the party is now invested in killing, kind of a Almost like the Lord of the Rings nemesis system from the video games, you know. This guy who killed you or knocked you out is now still around and still harrying you. You really want to kill him. But if, you can, if some of those guys surrender and now the party has to deal with them and talk to them and think about what to do with them, there's some really good story ideas in there. So that leg is really good, too. And then, as we've talked about, having a real villain, like your big bad has the ace in the hole where they've got checkmate on the party. So yeah, I'm surrendering, but you're not going to kill me. And here's why. And in fact, you're going to do what I want you to do, because if you don't, this is going to happen. That checkmate kind of moment is a real hallmark of almost every great story you read. Try to work those in. So all of these are fail states where the party theoretically wins the fight, but you still have ongoing unresolved issues, or even maybe the party wins the fight, but the villain has checkmate, so now we find out what the real story is. And we get to the real meat of the adventure. So keep those things in mind. It's fine to have battles end and all the NPCs dead, but some of your most interesting battles don't. So if you have an opportunity to have someone surrender, retreat, and do something cool with it, look out for that because it can lead to some of your most memorable moments uh, in any RPG. 
Guys, thanks a lot, man. It's been a lot of fun talking about villainy and knowing when to retreat and when to surrender. I think it's time for us to retreat for the night. <laughs> Absolutely. Good time. Thank you all for listening to From Home. This has been another episode of Three Wise DMs. If you'd like to hear us cover anything, a problem you're having, or something you'd like some advice on, please send us a question at threewisedms at gmail.com or go to our website, threewisedms.com, and enter it in the What's Your Problem field. Or you can talk to us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We're very active on all three channels. If you like what you heard here, please leave us a five-star review. Share, uh, leave an actual review if you can, five-star rating, or leave a review. Tell your friends. We've been growing by leaps and bounds, and that's really because of your support. Thank you very much for helping helping us do that. We'll see you next week on Three Wise DMs.